electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Charge Up, a new White House plan to take on climate change and drive electric. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Industry is stepping up, recognizing that there is a business as well as a moral imperative to do something. We are setting the tone and setting the regulations. Speaking of getting on the road, Uber out with its quarterly numbers. CEO Dara Khosrowshahi tackling profitability and passenger safety. With Uber, it would only be fair to require vaccines for both riders and drivers. To put that responsibility, that kind of decision-making power on a company, I don't think is right. And remember Robinhood. The commission-free broker used by retail traders, now loved by retail traders as a stock. Am I supposed to say it feels crazy? But maybe it isn't. I don't know. Those stories, plus writing the book on Tesla and TV, were watching less. The idea that there's a billion hours of less viewing, I think, just speaks to sort of where we are. Outside. That's where we are. Outside. Outside. It's Thursday, August 5th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. First up today on the pod, the meta of all memes, Robinhood having a moment. After a lackluster IPO just one week ago, CEO Vlad Tenev was on our podcast. Shares in the trading platform spiked as, you guessed it, Retail investors bid up the shares, 50% jump on Wednesday alone. This was kind of a throwback to the meme stock rallies that Robinhood helped to perpetuate in names like GameStop, movie theater chain AMC, heck, even Dogecoin. This surge is taking a pause today, though, as the company announced is filed to sell 97.9 million shares over time. But and this is key, Robinhood is not receiving any proceeds from the sale. The money will go to certain selling shareholders who invested in Robinhood early on. Now let's get back to Andrew Ross Sorkin. This has become, I don't, I don't know if you've been watching this, Becky, it's just, am I supposed to say it feels crazy? But maybe it isn't. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it has ride. become a, wi- <laughs> a wild week of trading. It has become a meme stock. The stock now jumping by 50.4% just yesterday. Uh, I got calls from from family members saying, am I supposed to own Robinhood? I mean, this is when you know that there's a problem. Uh, bringing it to a weekly gain to more than 100 uh, percent. They traded as high as eighty five dollars during yesterday's session after surpassing the IPO price of thirty eight dollars on Tuesday. That brings the market cap now to fifty eight billion dollars. The sharp moves coincide with Robinhood's debut in the options market. CBOE saying that more than three hundred. This is where it all is, guys. 300,000 contracts had traded by the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember, we had asked Vlad, we said, what happens when you become a meme stock? Uh, Mm. You know, have you thought about that? He said he had never even given it given it thought. There's customers that love these companies. They want them to uh, to thrive. 
and you, you're, you're seeing them also get resources that allow them to uh, hire really good management teams in some cases and then build for the future. So I, I think it's very interesting. I don't know if, if people have understood the ramifications of what high retail participation in the markets means, but I think fundamentally it's a very good right. thing and, and we're excited to, to be a part of it. But you're really seeing it move. The, the options are where it's moving, uh, whether it's being moved on uh, you know, among Robinhood customers themselves, I don't know. Um, and then, by the way, you remember we had this big debate, Joe and I and you, and we were all talking last week or a week ago now about whether Goldman Sachs had priced this thing right um, or had made some kind of grand mistake. Although did you got to remember just not? on the day that it, that it came out, it actually dropped. So it looked like, if anything, right. they'd priced it too high on the initial opening day. This like all bets are off once you get into this um, mean stock territory with things. And it, and it is retail investors who are moving this. If you were looking at that options trading, right. these were small lots that were taking place that were trading yesterday. So that tells you this is the retail investor who's behind at least a lot of the options trading. But there was a board member who spent almost $2 million buying shares uh, just at the beginning of the week, too. But, and this goes back to the Goldman issue, you know, I think a lot of people gave Goldman Sachs a very hard time for the initial fall on day one. Mm-hmm. Do you measure an IPO and the pricing of an IPO on the day one action? Is that, is that the appropriate measure? Do you measure it a week away? Do you measure it half a year away, a year away? I mean, I mean was I think this a these situation that, that where it wasn't enough given to retail investors, and that's why it changed so quickly? Because I, I don't think anybody would have bet this um, watching the action of the first I think day. I don't think anybody would have guessed we'd be right. here at, the, at this point in the week. I think this is an option story. I think this is an option story, and I think it's reflective of what we've seen in AMC, and I think it's reflective of what we've seen in GameStop in terms of how the options effectively have moved the stock, if you will, because of what's had to, had to happen on the underlying on the underlying stock itself. So. And I guess the other question is, can the company take advantage of this? Is there anything that they can do, like a convertible debt offering or anything that they can quickly do to try and capitalize on this? I mean, the question is, how much more money would they like to raise? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little baffled. General Motors, Ford and Fiat Chrysler parent, uh, uh, Stellantis, uh, reportedly, uh, uh, reportedly uh, planning to announce today that by the uh, year 2030, between 40 and 50 percent of their vehicle sales will be electric. Announcement coming during a White House event that's scheduled for this afternoon, something the president has already teased on Twitter. Detroit's big three will call for billions in government assistance to help meet aggressive targets. And then Elon Musk pointing out on Twitter that Tesla was not invited to the event. But, Becky, Hmm. talking about Elon Musk, I don't know if you saw the other piece of news, Elon Musk uh, making it official that Walter Isaacson, friend of Squawk, CNBC contributor, is writing his biography. Wow. Well, that would be something That was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And there's been there's a lot of Tesla books out right now. So I think uh, I I think that Elon's trying to get he's not getting out ahead of it, but he's because he's pointing 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 to the one that uh, that that he's hoping that he's cooperating uh, with. More reflective look, of Walter his, uh, his life. Walter does it better than anybody in terms of going back yep. and taking a look at inventors and uh, really watching, uh, showing the magic, like where it happens and how it fits into history. So it will be yep. something that uh, obviously we'll all want to read, too. We should also show you shares of Roku right now because they're falling as well. Earnings of 52 cents per share did beat estimates of 13 cents and revenue also beating but the company said that streaming dropped by 1 billion hours from the first quarter, totaling 14 point or I should say 17.4 billion hours 
in the second quarter. Roku also said that tight component supply conditions and shipping constraints raised their costs faster than it had expected. But, Becky, the, the idea that a, there's a billion hours of less viewing, yeah. I think, just speaks to sort of where we are uh, in outside. the... That's where we are. Outside. Outside. <laughs> right. Summer, outside, right. pandemic. Things are changing. But there's so many there's so many industries that we're seeing now hit by that in, in so many ways. Well, that, that uh, was the big question, change. right? Would, would our behavior yeah. change? Would, would, would some of these companies that had seen such a surge in interest, would that pull back? And it's a mixed picture still. Um, you heard from Electronic Arts earlier this week, and their yep. stock did really well because it looked like people were still playing games. But so many questions that have been out there. Next on Squawk Pod, Uber's ride-hailing business is getting back on the road, but maybe not as seamless as it once was. The company's CEO on the speed bumps to recovery. Wait times were higher than we wanted them to be. Prices were surging. We consider that unacceptable. We think our consumer experience, the Uber that you're used to, push a button, car shows up in three to five minutes. That's the magical experience that we want to bring back as quickly as possible. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Rolava, up track. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. Shares of Uber under a bit of pressure this morning. The ride handling and delivery giant beating analyst estimates on the top and bottom line for the second quarter. And it said it still expects to reach profitability on an adjusted EBITDA basis by the end of the year. But for the second quarter, Uber lost a half billion dollars as it invested in bringing drivers back to the platform. Joining us right now first on CNBC is Uber CEO Derek Khazrushahi. Uh, Derek, it's great to see you this morning Let's talk about the, this last quarter, and then let's talk a little bit about uh, what the future holds, uh, given that you have a remarkable pulse, not just on what's happening in the United States, but uh, in other parts of the world as well. Um, you did beat on the top and bottom line, but I think that there's a big question around the incentives and the amount of money you've had to spend to try to bring drivers back onto the platform. Yeah, I think it's uh, it was a purposeful investment uh, on our part to bring drivers back onto the platform, because what we saw was that demand was growing so much faster, especially for mobility businesses, uh, than driver supply, and wait times were higher than we wanted them to be, uh, prices were surging, et cetera. And we consider that unacceptable. Uh, we think our consumer experience, the Uber that you're used to, push a button, car shows up in three to five minutes. That's the magical experience that we want to bring back as quickly as possible. 
So we really leaned in in building up driver supply in Q2. We brought back over 420,000 drivers and couriers onto the platform. We added to that 110,000 couriers as a result of the Postmates acquisition. And now that we see driver supply coming back and with driver earnings being very high in our top cities, drivers uh, who are driving for Uber are making over 40 bucks an hour, including tips. We think we're very, very good position for Q3 and Q4. Q3, we said that we'll do better than 100 million in EBITDA. Q4, we are on track for profit profitability as well. So sometimes you have to invest. In this case, we wanted to invest in the consumer experience. Got to spend a dollar to make a dollar. How many more dollars are you going to have to spend on, on, on incentives for drivers, you think, going forward? Well, we're going to continue spending on incentives for drivers. We spend incentives, for example, to get drivers to the right location. We'll spend on uh, incentives in order to get drivers to drive at the right times. And we've got ML algorithms essentially targeting and balancing supply and demand on a real-time basis so that, you know, when you push that button and the Uber shows up in four minutes, it's effortless, but there's a lot of magic going on behind it as far as the algorithms making it happen. The good news is in July, we were able to pull back on incentives. We're able to target our incentives much more precisely. And at the same time, the first time drivers that we brought on in July were up 30% uh, versus June. So now that we have the flow coming, onboarding is much easier for drivers. We're able to pull back on incentives. Drivers are still able to earn and the experience is getting better and better and better. Right. What are you seeing in terms of bringing back drivers' incentives in states with or without unemployment benefits? So we're seeing in states that uh, do not have unemployment benefits, let's say a uh, in Florida or cities like Phoenix, et cetera, the balance of drivers coming back is better. It's hard to tell if it's because of the unemployment benefits or it's just these cities are opening up more and people are feeling better about moving around. So I can't point out a causal relationship. But there does seem to be a correlation there. And in terms of the Delta variant, when you look at states that that are particularly hard hit, are you seeing a distinction in terms of what's happening in your business, both on the ride hailing side and on the delivery side? Not really. You know, we see the effects of the Delta variant uh, if a city closes down. So Sydney, for example, is closed down. And what we see there is it's a natural hedge of the business, which is the delivery business is growing at very, very high rates. Mobility takes a penalty. Overall, Uber, for example, in Sydney is up 30% versus June of 19. But in other cities, it's very difficult to parse out what's going on as a result as it relates to the Delta variant. We're obviously hoping for the best going forward. Hey, Dar, I just wanted to ask about the DD stake. I mean, obviously, that's part of the reason why you guys were able to report a profit. Uh, because it was an unrealized gain in the DD shares um, that, that, that show that. And it's a weird accounting change. Warren Buffett's talked about it, how you have to report all of these unrealized gains and then losses. Um, DD shares are down 22% over the last month. So uh, I guess sophisticated investors realize this. They know what's going on. Um, does it concern you at all, A, to either have these unrealized gains and then unrealized losses that you'll have to show on the statement? And, and B, how do you feel about just the business with DD? Um, given the crackdown that we've seen from, from, from China? Yeah, honestly, we don't pay too much attention on the unrealized gains or losses on a quarterly basis. Uh, Nelson Che, our CFO, 
is in charge of maximizing the value of those uh, of those investments. And we view DD as an investment and we'll look to maximize the value over a period of time. Um, but we don't pay too much attention to the accounting until we actually have to report it uh, to our investors. You know, as far as what Didi's is going through, uh, it's a very difficult situation. And it shows an example why you really have to bring safety first, why you have to be in constant dialogue with your stakeholders, with the governments on a state and local level. And it's just a reminder that, um, you know, this is a business that has real impact on the cities of the world and the people living in those cities. And that comes with a lot of responsibility. And Dara, wanted to go back uh, to the issue of Delta. Uh, you've uh, pushed your offices, the reopening back. Uh, lots of questions about vaccination, uh, whether employees should be vaccinated. There seems to be this sort of interesting dichotomy where white collar workers are in some cases are being required to be vaccinated. And yet blue collar workers, including potentially drivers, are not. Can you speak to what's happening here and why CEOs are thinking that way? Well, I think it's, you know, it's a tough situation. White collar workers, you're spending time together in office eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. Uh, And we think based on the variant and the health concerns there, it was an easy call as it relates to coming back to the office. You know, with with blue collar and certainly with with Uber, you know, if it would only be fair to require vaccines for both riders and drivers, right? These are people, you're in a car, you're in a small space. uh, And so what we have pushed is safety, masking, leaving the window open, et cetera, but we've got over 100 million riders and drivers constantly moving around together on a monthly basis. Uh, and we think that the push, which we completely support, should be for the government to get people vaccinated, everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible, so we can get back to life. Could you see um, making a decision that all drivers and passengers should be vaccinated? I think it's something that you could think about based on the circumstances that we're seeing now. We think the best path forward is for us and government, and we've certainly played our parts to push vaccination. You know, we've had free vaccinations. We've got partnerships with Walgreens and others to really get the vaccination rates up. We think that's the best way forward. But do you think that part of the issue is that on the white collar side, there's a view that there will be compliance or enough compliance to continue to operate, but that a lot of companies, including your own, maybe that don't feel compelled or feel that they can mandate vaccines on their own employees or in this case, contractors, that there would be effectively a new supply chain problem, because that's something that you hear constantly uh, from at least privately. The conversations I've had with this, with CEOs of very large companies that seem to be having this sort of uh, two, two, two views about it, one in the office and one uh, and one. By the way, I would argue to you that there's more people in contact with more other people uh, in what might be described as the blue collar jobs. Uh, I think I think that's possibly true. I think when you get to the numbers of in the hundreds of millions, which is what we're talking about as far as riders and drivers go um, to put that responsibility, that kind of decision making power on a company, I don't think is right. I think these mandates, if they're pushed, should be pushed by local or federal governments. And that's really the, the direction that we're going with. And then whatever mandate is put forward, we are doing right. our best to support. And then finally, uh, path to profitability. You've talked about being uh, adjusted, but uh, positive uh, by the end of the year. You still think you're on track? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we think Q3 is looking good in terms of 
uh, drivers coming back, the July volumes that we've seen and the July margins that we've seen are very, very constructive. Uh, and we think that's going to lead us to a Q4 that's going to be EBITDA positive. More importantly what do you than think that, about a non, What do you think about a non-adjusted EBITDA positive? Yeah, listen, well, uh, we were non-EBITDA positive uh, this quarter based on our investments, right? So for us, it's much more about the fundamentals. And EBITDA positive is a step, the much more important step for us is what is our growth path over the next five to 10 years? We're the biggest mobility player outside of China. We're the biggest delivery player outside of China. These businesses are helping each other in very, very profound ways. And it's about the growth for the next five to 10 years that we think is a real story here. And I think we're very well positioned. Okay, final question. How'd you feel about the Maury endowed treatment? Pretty, pretty great story. I thought, yeah, I, I thought it was a great story. It was, um, it was fun having her come in and meet uh, the family. And uh, the kids just loved her. And they were like so lucky to be with someone like her. For those who don't know what we're talking about, Maureen Dowd wrote, I don't know how many thousands of words about Dara uh, in the Sunday New York Times two weeks ago. And it was quite, quite, quite a read. Dara, great to see you. Nice seeing you as well. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the White House's new push to address climate change. And they're starting with your driveway. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. This is where the world is going. So the big question for us is, how much of it's going to happen here? Is the electric vehicle future going to be built by American firms on American soil with American workers? Or are other countries going to get ahead of us? That conversation right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Straight up on Becky. Three. This is Squawk Pod. One. Up on Becky. Two. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's out today, but... uh, There's a lot happening. President Biden announcing that he's going to be signing an executive order setting a pretty ambitious target of 50 percent of electric vehicles to be sold in the United States by the year 2030. Joining us right now in a Squawk exclusive with more on that announcement is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And Secretary Buttigieg, thanks for being here today. I'm really glad to have you here because I'm confused by what I've read about this. Is this an executive order mandating that 50 percent of cars in the United States have to be electric by the year 2030? Is this a voluntary thing that uh, the top players in the industry are kind of stepping up and say they'd like to see 40 to 50 percent? I've read a lot of different confusing things. Right. Yeah. Let me help break it down. So it doesn't function as a mandate, but it does create the conditions for us to meet that goal. We have got to act. Uh, The transportation sector is the biggest part of our economy emitting greenhouse gases, and cars and trucks are one of the biggest parts of that. So this goal of getting half of our new vehicles to be electric uh, within the decade is going to be urgently needed for us to meet the imperative of, of climate in our time. Now, in terms of how it works, you got the executive order that sets that overall direction, the policy of the federal government, and then it challenges all of the different agencies, including mine, 
to take steps that are consistent with that, including uh, a step that we've been working on actually from, from almost day one uh, that we're prepared to announce today, which is new corporate average fuel economy or CAFE standards. Uh, these are ambitious, they are aggressive, but they're also feasible, and they're going to require uh, that uh, fuel efficiency increases by about 8% a year in the next model years. Now, meanwhile, you've got EPA. They have the authority to regulate tailpipe emissions and the pollution coming out of vehicles. They're going to make an announcement too. So basically what you have here is all of the different pulleys and levers of the federal government working in the same direction toward a very ambitious and very urgently needed goal. Administrations come and go, and if they have a polar opposite sort of goals, it can be like whiplash to an industry that's trying to invest for, let's say, a decade at a time, spending lots of capital expenditures going into this. Um, maybe what's more important is what the industry itself is, is saying it will pros, propose to do. And you've got big players like GM, Ford and Stellantis um, saying that their goal will be to have it there by 40 to 50 percent of their sales be electric vehicles by the year 2030 if the administration spends billions of dollars trying to make that happen. Uh, is that something that's going to happen with the billions of dollars they want? It'd be for manufacturing, for research, for making sure that there's actual, actually electronic, electric vehicle charging stations throughout the country. That's um, a big difference. That's right. You really need to, to have policy, industry, and importantly, labor pulling in the same direction. And, and that's what you're going to see today at the White House. Industry is stepping up, recognizing that there is a business as well as a moral imperative to do something. Uh, we are setting the tone and setting the regulations at the federal level. And uh, we're also seeing uh, uh, workers uh, looking at how more jobs can be created through this transition to, to EVs. It's pretty clear that this transition is going to happen. This is where the world is going. So the big question for us is, uh, how much of it's gonna happen here? Is the electric vehicle future going to be built by American firms on American soil with American workers? Or are other countries gonna get ahead of us? And that competitiveness piece, is a, a really big factor here. Uh, as you say, there's been a lot of, of whipsawing. The previous administration uh, really acted to dramatically weaken the standards that were already underway. But what we have now is not only making clear what this administration's policy is, uh, but being aligned with industry that recognizes that this is the future. And a lot depends on how quickly we can get to that future state of greener, cleaner cars, which by the way, also means a lot of consumer savings. We estimate about $900 in savings over the lifetime of a vehicle for a family that purchases it, thanks to these higher expectations that we're laying down today. You mentioned a lot of constituencies. The only one I didn't hear was in terms of consumer demand. Do, do customers actually want these things? Um, and I ask because obviously there's huge demand in, in places and parts of the country, especially where the infrastructure has been built out and you can find a charging station in lots of different places. Uh, but The Wall Street Journal did a pretty interesting um, uh, report where they had a lot of reporters in different parts of the country in different countries all try and, and, and use an electric vehicle for maybe a month and see what happened in their life. And in a lot of situations, they, they couldn't find a charging station. It took hours to recharge. So a 10-hour trip took 15 hours. Um, or they were in cold places like, like Michigan, and the batteries didn't work or weren't as effective when you're dealing with cold situations. So we can set this up, but is this going to be something that consumers want? 
Right. So uh, uh, these vehicles are incredible in terms of their capabilities. You look at something like the, uh, the new electric pickup trucks that are coming out. They actually have superior torque as well as the fuel savings. But you're right. We've got to make sure the infrastructure is there. It's one of the reasons why this bipartisan infrastructure package that is being finalized in the Senate as we speak uh, contains billions of dollars to build that charging infrastructure network. Uh, now, obviously, it's partly up to industry to, to market these products, but it's also up to us at a policy level to make sure that we're driving that kind of adoption. I do want to mention that I think one thing is going to shift. This isn't intuitive, but something I think you're going to see more and more of is more interest in electric vehicles in rural areas and more spread out areas. And the reason I say that is that these are areas where you're more likely to have people living in standalone homes, which means your charging infrastructure is already there. It's the plug in your wall. Maybe you want to upgrade and get a faster charger, but for most families and most users, you have the thing plugged in overnight in your garage, uh, as we did, by the way, uh, it, my own household with a plug-in uh, electric vehicles of Ford C-Max uh, we had when I was living in South Bend. Uh, it was uh, uh, electric for the first 20 miles or so, and the charging infrastructure was literally just an ordinary plug. Uh, plus, of course, you got rural drivers and suburban drivers driving more miles, which means they're going to save more money. Uh, by not having to buy more gas. So I think we're going to see some really interesting shifts and dynamics in the market for these electric vehicles in the coming years. But it starts with the president establishing that this is a national priority. And that's what today's executive order really means. Mr. Secretary, uh, there's one uh, car manufacturer that seems conspicuously absent uh, from this event today, and that is Tesla. And I'm curious why. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, what I know is that uh, you're seeing so many leaders in industry. Uh, you got newer companies, uh, and you've got uh, you know the legacy companies that are both saying that that we've got to move in this direction. Uh, the industry structure obviously is is complex, and and part of what's exciting uh, is to see some of the oldest, most traditional names in U.S. auto manufacturing, and some of the newest companies on the scene all acting uh, in, in right. terms of the very core of their business to go electric. I, but I don't know if you did you see Elon Musk's tweet He said, yeah, it seems odd that Tesla wasn't invited. No, I, I haven't seen that. But uh, look, we're excited about all of the momentum for making sure that uh, Americans can drive electric vehicles going into the future. And uh, and by the way, we're also moving toward a future where this is all across the market. I don't want there to be a perception uh, that this is just a, a, for a kind of luxury thing uh, or that this is just for uh, you know, cars that, that you use to zip around cities. We're talking about everything from uh, the kinds of cars that, that you've seen on the market already to uh, pickup trucks getting more and more attention. And this is really the future, we believe, for the entirety of the American light-duty vehicle market. In terms of the major auto companies saying that they're willing to make this pledge to try to get to 40 to 50 percent of their sales being EV by 2030, if the United States invests billions in infrastructure, there are some environmentalists who've been pushing back saying, wait a second, why should we trust them? They're going to go back on this. What, what makes it to make sure that they'll actually meet those standards after we've spent the billions of dollars? What do you say to that? Well, that's where the regulations come in. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, we are partnering with industry. We are standing with industry. But we're also setting some very clear and enforceable targets here. Uh, again, uh, EPA is acting on the tailpipe emission side. Uh, NHTSA, the, the uh, Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that's within my department, is acting on the emission standards. And so, uh, look, the, these are aggressive targets. But we also, uh, after some very, very thoroughgoing analysis, uh, believe that uh, uh, 
uh, that they are achievable. They're out for comment for the next 60 days, and then will be finalized. Uh, th this is, uh, uh, again, where all of these things need to come together. Aspiration, regulation, uh, and uh, just a, a nationwide whole of society effort to do what we need to do for our climate, but also for our economy. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for joining us today. Um, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Same here. Thank you. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us what you think. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC or write a review on Apple Podcasts. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.